Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guests today are Bernadette and Mike Byrne, who join me to discuss their book, The Birth of the Beatles Story. There's two stories here. Bernadette was a fan who saw the Beatles countless times in the cavern and around Liverpool and who ended up dating a certain George Harrison. A lifetime later, in the 1980s, Bernie's husband Mike realised that the city of Liverpool was attracting tourists from all over the world and he came up with the idea for a Beatles museum. He and Bernie worked tirelessly and created the Beatles story on the Albert Dock an exhibition which has gone on to attract over 5 million visitors. Well, Mike and Bernadette Byrne, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you both? Both well, thank you very much. Yeah, both well. That's good to hear. So we're here to talk about your book, uh, which details all sorts of events in the history of the Beatles from the Liverpool days right through to your role in the creation of the, the Beatles Story Museum. An obvious kind of first question, but a lot of these events happened quite a long time ago. What what was the inspiration for writing the book now? Well, for many years, people have said to us, why don't you write a book? You know, because we were involved with so many things over 50 years. And uh, we've always gone, no, I don't think we've got enough to put in a book. And then a couple of years ago, I found on my computer about 100 pictures of the build, the actual build of the exhibition. And I thought, oh, I know what we could do. We could do an illustrated book of how we built the exhibition. Anyway, I I spoke to a friend of mine, a guy called Tim Quinn, who was involved with Marvel Comics. And he said, you know what I'll do? I'll come to your house and I'll interview you and Bernie. And he spent over two days talking to us about our past. And then he came back to me three days later. And what did he say? He said, you know what? You've got a book here. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have got the real book here. You've got to put you and Bernie's history of being at the 60s yeah. and how your involvement with the Beatles. And then the middle section is when we took the old Beatles City exhibition, which I was in, well, we were both involved with for a little bit. And then we took that to Dallas in Texas, and that was another story. And we've got pictures from that. So then we went, ah, okay. There is a book in us. <laughs> well, I have to say, I completely agree that there is. It's a really excellent book. I, I love the, the kind of two sides of the story. And the first part of the story really centres around the Beatles in Liverpool, which obviously you were both involved in. But I'm particularly interested, Bernie, in, in your side of the story, because it's always good to hear from original Cavanites like yourself. So if I could direct this first question toward yourself, before you saw the Beatles, Were you aware of the name around Liverpool or was it something that you hadn't heard until you first clapped eyes on them? Well, I hadn't heard it until I hadn't heard of a lot of the groups until we went to see one particular group. Um, We at the time, my friend and I were only about 14 or 15 and we didn't go to sort of clubs like the cavern. We went to dance halls. That was sort of more the trend. And they used to have sort of huge dance halls above which one time would have been used for ballroom dancing. And so we got to know which ones were having live music on. And a lot of them, of course, the younger bands then started to copy Elvis. Personally, ourselves, we were crazy Cliff Richard fans. 
So we we sort of looked out to see who was imitating Cliff Richard, you know, like they have impersonators today. A lot of the mm. bands would do Elvis songs or Cliff songs, Eddie Cochran. And so we started to go to those kind of places. But um, they were in different parts of Liverpool. Some of them were, you know, what you might say a bit posh. Others were in a sort of rundown part of the city. Because we were so young, we were kind of forbidden to go to those places. So we didn't go particularly to see the Beatles when we first saw them. Um, but we went to see, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a group called Farron, Farron's Flamingos. He used to do an imitation of Elvis. He used to come on in a white suit and do his Elvis songs, you know. That was the first, well, knowledge we we knew of the Beatles. Although I did used to go to a club regularly, which apparently they played at. I didn't even know this myself till later, which was mm. opposite the Casbah, where the Beatles, of course, were sort of started out. Anyway, um, after we'd... Um, been to see um, Baron. We we stayed to watch the rest of the show, and then the Beatles came on, and that was our first. My friend and I, our first sort of glimpse of what we thought was, "Wow, this is something really different," you know. Can you remember what it was that made them seem different that first time? Well, yes, the fact that they were, um, you know, there was Baron in his white suit. Uh, Jerry and the pacemakers were on. They just sort of wore like check country shirts and jeans. They had leather coats just heavy leather coats, cowboy boots, particularly John Lennon's cowboy boots. In fact, they all had leather coats and Stuart Sutcliffe was with them. Um, We didn't really notice him that much. He just stood at the back and had his head down with his guitar and his sunglasses. It was only Paul. Paul had a kind of a reefer jacket on and we just thought, wow, these are really different, you know. And as soon as we saw them and heard them play, well, that was it. It was the start of something big, we realised. How quickly did it get to you kind of following them around and seeing them regularly? Was that something that happened straight away? Or do you remember if that happened over time? We get the, um, my parents used to get the Echo paper, which was the evening newspaper. They used to list the clubs that were on open in town. Most of them we were too young to go to, but they did have like a little beat section where they would start to show various places. Um, And then the they had things like the Iron Door and the Cavern were eventually listed. And then, of course, later on, when Bill Harry started the Mersey Beat, we had all the information we needed there, you know. So um, we would look to see where they were playing and um, usually go and try and see them. But, you know, it was all very, very innocent and very quiet because we had to be home by a certain time. And it was. Um, but as soon as we went to see the Beatles, we noticed a lot of other fans had started to get to know them and we realised we had to get there very early if you wanted to be able to see them even because the crowds were. So I guess, you know, it just kind of crept up on us, really. Brilliant. Did you immediately, like, as you as you mentioned there, you said you noticed other people were, were interested in them. Was that almost all girls or were there some male fans? Was it, was it girls yes, straight away? There were quite a lot of male fans, but it was usually the girls that were at the front and they'd stand at the front of the stage. Um, and the earlier you got there, the, the nearer the front you would get, you know. Did you immediately form friendships with the other girls? Did it become a community, would you say, quite quickly? Or um, you, you got to know, we got to know quite a few, but it was like little groups, really. There was about three or four of us and then three or four other girls and you'd kind of get to know the same faces as the, the crowds got towards the front. It was happening with a lot of pop stars, though, in those days. You know, if they were big, and it was almost like the people you might have seen on television suddenly mm. came into your world, as it were, and so you wanted to be as close as you could to see who they were, what they were doing, and you noticed all the little actions, you know, how they played the guitar, whether they stamped their foot or 
shook their head or whatever they did, you know. Um, uh, as I said, we a lot of them were Elvis fans at the time. We were Cliff Richard fans. And of course, at that time, Cliff was a big hit in England. And whenever he came to Liverpool, we would always be in the queue to get our tickets, definitely on the front row where we'd sit and scream for the whole of the show. But uh, <laughs> that was how it was. OK, Mike, so coming coming to you. So you were in, I suppose it's safe to say, in bands around the same time as the Beatles. Can you remember the first time that you encountered them? Um, yeah, I um, I was in a band called Mike and the Thunderbirds, <laughs> which was actually named named by um, Rory Storm, because I was very friendly with Rory. And uh, I first saw them, they, they'd just come back from their second trip to Hamburg, I think, probably sometime 61, and they were at the Aintree Institute, which was uh, another venue outside town. And... Um, they they were amazing. Uh, you know, the other groups were on. I, I'd been on the same venue the night before, I think. And uh, they came on. And it was the time when they'd always worn the leather jackets and the cowboy boots. But this is the time when they came back with the leather trousers as well. And it was like, oh, my God, the power of this band it just hit you in the chest. It wasn't just the volume. It was just, they were so tight. They were so together. Stuart Sutcliffe had, had left by then. So Paul was on bass. Pete Best was still on drums then. And it was just like, wow, this is good. I mean, I, I used to go and see all the bands because it's just obvious. I, my, my first band was pretty rubbish. You know, we, we were just starting out. I improved two years later when I went pro. But then I was pretty bad. So I, but I go and watch all the bands, but they, they were just incredible. But at the same time, at lunch times, they were playing the cavern. And when they were back from Hamburg, they, they play two or three time lunch times a week. When they weren't there, the cavern lunchtime sessions were filled in by the big three, Rory Storm, the searchers, Jerry and the pacemakers. You know, I was lucky enough to work at the time. 150 yards away from the cabin, round the corner. So I could go down every lunchtime and see all these great bands because it was only the best bands who did the lunchtime sessions, you know. I remember this particular time, it was after the Aintree Institute. I'd played there the night before and I'd forgotten to pick my fee up. Anyway, I was down at the lunchtime session watching the Beatles. Afterwards, I went to the Grapes pub I was in there, I was talking to Paul, I, I was friendly with Paul then, and I said, you know what, I forgot to get my fee from Ancient Institute the other night. John Lennon turned around, overheard me and said, that's the, laughing, the last you left in the sea of that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that, that was the impact they had. So you mentioned the Kevin there, Bernie, if I can come to you now, do you remember seeing them at the Kevin regularly? Do you remember at what point that started? I think it was only after we'd seen them at these other clubs, you know, like Aintree Institute, that we started going to the cabin. It must have been fairly early on when they started because um, it was always so crowded when they were on that everyone wanted to sit near the front. And we kind of adopted a, a corner of the cabin as our own. This is a group of friends and myself. If one of us couldn't get down there at the beginning of the show, somebody else had had their coats on the seats. So when we got there, we were at the front as well. But um, and people used to dance along the two side passageways. And so most of the audience was in the middle, except for these two little alcoves. 
that's where some of those early photographs were taken that you may have seen in different books, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was your spot, wasn't it? Yeah, that, we, that, that first archway, which was like two yards from the stage, a yard from the stage. Yeah, your, your knees were actually against the stage. So, you know, yeah. our, our eyes were on their feet, as it were, or the side where Paul and George sang. When they sang together, we were just sort of down at the feet. <laughs> when I think about it now, I don't think we realised at the time. At what point did you... Bernie, did you kind of get to know them and, and start to speak to them? Was that in the cavern as well? Probably, yes, because um probably heard or might might have said they had a little coffee bar at the back and um people would go and get a drink. Sometimes people would have their lunch down there if they were young people working in town. They'd have a cup of coffee and um sandwich or something. And the Beatles would either have a break between sets and they'd wander to the back of the cavern. And that was the chance then to have a little chat or... But it was hard, really, to talk to any of them then because there was too many people, you know, wanting to speak to. And there was only four of them. So um, some of them, sometimes they didn't come out at all. Some of the times they'd just stay in the band room. You know, you had to just wait and go and watch them again. And... Tell, tell Joe the story about um, the present the thing, the present you made for Paul. Was his, his birthday? birthday? I don't know what, which birthday it was. I think... Um, Anyway, whatever it was, it was his birthday and we decided to make him. I worked in a hairdressing salon and one of my clients used to, for charity and things, used to knit little dolls. So we asked her to, um, well, I asked her to knit this little doll in the style of a beetle. In other words, um, it looked sort of like a little knitted body with antennae sticking out of its head, um, a little metal guitar. They used to wear green and white striped shirts in those days. And my friend went to a school that had the same kind of colouring in her. So we had a shirt made out of that. We had a little metal guitar that my brother made in this metalwork class. And it had these little antennas. Quite cute, really, I think. (laughs) And uh, we decided we wanted to give this to Paul. Now, in those days, a lot of the fans tried to get into the band room. And you might have heard of Paddy Delaney. He was the, the bouncer, as we used to call them then. And he was outside the door, wouldn't let anybody in because they were trying to have a rest in between sets. Mm. Anyway, when we went up with our very proud with our little doll, we said, can we give this to Paul? It's, you know, for his birthday. So we said, oh, go on, let you in, you know. So we let us in and we marched in all chuffed that, you know, we'd got in the band room and uh, gave it to Paul. And he was delighted. And John just looked over and said, uh, you could have knitted us something decent, like a guitar case. <laughs> So, uh, you know, fortunately, we didn't take offence, but uh, we were just delighted that Paul had taken it. I often wondered, you know, I wonder if he ever kept it (laughs) or is it in an auction somewhere now? We'll never know. We'll never know. So that's interesting. So they they were hard to get to even at that point. They were famous already in Liverpool. Yes, they were. You know, people would pester them. I think they used to say, we're staying in the band room because we can't get a cup of coffee in peace. People want to talk to us. And, you know, they hadn't become famous, really. And they didn't, you know, none of us knew what was going to happen to them in the future. Each girl, as it were, had their favourite Beatle, you know. And you might have heard all the stories about when Pete was sort of thrown out of the group. And he had his own set of friends. Paul had his own set, John, you know. And people would try to talk to them all the time. But in the end, I think they just got, I suppose it was the start of Beatlemania in a way, really. Mm. And uh, Paddy was great. He looked after them and he used to just say, no, nobody can go in. They're having a cup of tea or something like that, you know. You mentioned Pete there. Uh, Obviously, he was generally seen to be kind of separate from John, Paul and George. Did you notice that from the times that you saw them and you were around them? Well, yes, he he, he was much quieter. 
he never seemed to mix with the others when they were at the coffee bar or anything. He kept himself to himself very much. And um, I just think he, he, he loved playing, but he didn't want to part of the mob adulation. It wasn't quite mob in those days, but it was very crowded, the cabin, very hard, you know. And so if you wanted to sort of relax for a quarter of an hour, half an hour, you had to stay in the band room. And it was just, that's the way it was, you know. What about um, another quick question about the, the kind of cavern days? Uh, around this time, John was seen to be, was it obvious that John was kind of front and centre and the leader or did you get the real, the, the early signs of that Lennon McCartney friendship? Well, yeah, I, I thought, I think we felt John was the dominant because, you know, as I said, we, we'd experienced his sharp tongue on a couple of occasions, uh, as many people did. But I think it was just his way. He, you know, I don't think he meant to be nasty particularly. He was the oldest. So I guess in those days it used to be the oldest sort of took control and took charge. As far as the material they were doing was concerned, I think it was Paul and him sort of decided. Um, George had his own sort of little spot. But um, I think most of the show really was under, well, probably between John and Paul, I think. I'm not sure. You. Mm, I got the impression that. I mean, John John started the band, yeah. But when they were at the cavern, when, when they were doing the local gigs, because of the type of music they were doing, and they had a vast repertoire, which you had to have when you were playing eight hours a night in Germany, something like that, you know, they'd have a terrific repertoire. And each of them had their own favourite artists that they liked to sing the songs yeah. by. But a lot of them, as you know, had lots of harmony in. Not just not just three part harmony, but a lot of backing harmony as well. So when you saw them, when we saw them at the cavern, I mean, you saw it later, obviously, you know, on television. But with this confined space, they were always interacting all the time, particularly on the Paul and John songs, because they had a lot of backing vocals. So Paul, if John was singing, Paul and George would come together to do the backing vocal. If Paul was singing, John and George would get in on one microphone. You know, they had this thing about the, the two of them getting on one microphone. And you, you saw it in Twist and Shout. You, you know, you saw it in Money Boys. They they interacted an awful lot. So it wasn't that obvious on stage that John was the leader. But he was the one with the biggest mouth. You wouldn't be the first to have said that. Um, Mike, just, just quickly on, on Pete. Did you notice Pete being separate from the feeling as well? Yeah, it was it was it was quite obvious, really. He he was a good drummer. He was a good drummer. He had a great beat, but he didn't have the versatility that Ringo had, you know. And Ringo was well known in the cavern by everyone else because he was with Rory Storm, and Ringo had his own spot anyway. Rory, you know, Rory in the middle of the show say, "Now, ladies and gentlemen, now kids." It's Ringo star time. You know, so Ringo already was very well known with people and particularly, you know, the other Beatles and the other bands, they knew who Ringo was. And at the time, of course, I don't think Peter would feel threatened by Ringo. He didn't know. I don't think he knew what was coming, obviously. Um, he'd been the backbeat of the Beatles that got them noticed by Brian Epstein and everyone else. But he, he was different. When they when the other three had the the beetle cut in Hamburg, he was the one who said, "I'm not getting mind on like that." You know, he di he didn't have as much of a laugh as the rest of them did. 
What about Bernie? When uh, Ringo joined the band, you said that you obviously each member had their own fan club. Was that big news around Liverpool that, that Pete was out and Ringo was in? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I remember going down and um, there was a couple of the fans standing outside the door saying, have you heard what's happened? Have you heard what's happened? Pete, he's been thrown out the group, you know, but, you know, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know somebody could be thrown out. I thought they were all a group. He said, Pete's been thrown out and Pete Best and they started chanting, um, Pete forever, Ringo never and this kind of thing. Uh, poor George came out of the cabin this particular lunchtime with a huge black eye. And you might, you might have read about it, but um, th- there were a couple of lads down there who really were friends of Pete and didn't want it to happen. And I think they took it out on poor George, really. You know, we, we really weren't that bothered because we weren't musicians, the fans. Uh, but he did have a very big fan. I mean, a lot of people said everybody liked Pete because he was the best looking of the group. Mm. But no, I disagree with that because I didn't think Pete was. Anyway, the others did seem to gel so much better and Ringo seemed to just fall into the slot, you know. Did you notice a big difference when Ringo joined or was it not kind of obvious straight away? I don't think it was obvious to me because I'm not a musician, but I do think that he seemed to gel with the others and it seemed to work as a unit more. In fact, often he never really took much notice of Pete because he was sat at the back. He didn't really, although he did sing his own sort of solo songs every now and again, we didn't really notice him because we were focused on the three at the front, obviously. So moving on from the seeing the group from a distance, Bernie, then you go on to talk in the book about your relationship that develops with George. You got a note through your door from him I did yes what did that note say it just said um will you please call me on this number when you get home or something and it was a tatty little bit of a note I'm a bit of a hoarder I'm afraid and um I keep all sorts not only for the Beatles but scraps of everything Mm. and um I'd kept this note for some strange reason um long after they became famous and I don't remember even finding it. When we were researching the book. Oh, maybe. (laughs) I think it was in a box in the loft somewhere. And then we thought, Mm -hmm. oh, that'd be good. That'd go well in the book, you know. If you've seen the picture of it, it's very tatty. And, I mean, he'd written it on a tiny little bit of, like, tissue paper. That's how it started. He just put it It's amazing. It survived. Yes, it is. Did you have any inkling that he might do that? Did you have a bit of a a connection with George? No, I, I used to get lifts home from him, from the club. Sometimes when at the cabin, uh, we used to get the bus home. I lived just a different part of the city to my two friends, and they went to one bus stop, I went to the other. And a couple of times, well, George and Paul um, offered to give us a lift, you know, as they were driving past, they'd pull over and say, do you want a lift home? Um, I don't know whether they knew where we lived. Well, I don't think they did know where we lived in those days. But um, after... Um, I had a lift home from George. It was two days ago before the cabin uh, that this note appeared through the door. So so I rang him, of course. <laughs> I thought, oh, why not? <laughs> so then you obviously you, you started to um, to spend some time with George. What what was that like? Was that something that developed quite quickly? Was it something that was quite kind of intense or quite casual? I mean, I probably would have forgotten all about him if he hadn't been famous. I don't know. No, I was quite chuffed, obviously, that uh, he'd asked me out. Um, I was quite chuffed when he gave me a lift home, really. So I can't even remember where we went. I think we went to the cinema when he came to take me out. And um, 
by this time, they'd be started to become quite well known around the city. And I do remember him getting quite agitated when we were leaving the cinema that um, people would be asking him for his autograph. You know, he would sort of usher me down the steps of the cinema, you know, sort of away from where the, the girls were, the fans. I even actually used to get little notes through my, some of, they must have found my address out and notes saying, uh, my friend is jealous of you because you're going out with Paul or George, I mean, sorry. Well, you know, what can I do? I'm, <laughs> I'm quite enjoying myself. I'm not going to stop now if I don't have to. So, and then suddenly they became famous and went off to London. You say in the book that once the the fame starts to kick in, then you, you start to lose touch with George. Would you say that was fair? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the gigs, and once they started to travel, they started to travel over the country, not just to Germany. Every week they'd have gigs at one end of the country to the other, you know. Occasionally he would call, if he would say, maybe as far as Sheffield or something, he would call possibly. But odd occasions he'd call, have a cup of coffee and... Um, say hello to my mum and mum is like they, I think when you're in a band you need somewhere to unwind when you you finished you know and so if it was not too far from Liverpool he'd often just pop in and have coffee and whatever and uh, I don't know if you you know when they got their silver disc he brought that to show me and my mum my father I think by the time he got there had usually gone to bed as, as fathers do I was chatting away with my mum and then he'd call uh, didn't always tell me when he was going to call but this particular night he brought the silver disc. I think it was Please Please Me, wasn't it? And my mum sort of was very impressed. She said, oh, can we play it? So uh, he thought that was very amusing. But And he used to bring lots of albums. He used to get albums from his sister in America, people like the Miracles and the Shirelles and things like that. Of course, we had a record player, so he was always quite happy to play them. And, yeah, it was just very nice, nice, comfortable relationship at the time. Did you see much of George after he became famous? When did you last see him? We, no, we, we were together, yeah, yeah, 1965. 65. Okay. Just come back from America, haven't they? Anyway, I hardly Sorry. knew Mike very well at that time. We were just walking down the street in Liverpool and towards me came George with Mal Evans. So we kind of bumped into each other and went, hi, you know, like this. And I said, oh, this is Mike, my boyfriend, you know, and he didn't have to introduce me to Mal. And I said the most stupid thing, which I still regret saying now, and I asked him what... What are you doing now? I think you looked at me as if to say you're stupid. <laughs> and all I was worried about is in the 1960s, we used to wear these hats like a bonnet. And they had like ears on the end. <laughs> and all I was embarrassed because I had this silly hat on. That's all I was thinking. And then I, I, we met him again, didn't we? At the, um, he, he came back to Liverpool in um, about 69 and he was with Delaney and Bonnie. Delaney yeah. And uh, there's a pub next to the Empire, the Lord Nelson. Yeah. And um, we were in the Lord Nelson. George was in there. And he had a long robe long on. white robe And on his and hair black, down here. And a black beard. Oh, And we, we went in. We were the couple of friends. Down, he just looked over. And he, he didn't say a word at the time. And then he just sort of went and summoned <laughs> me over as if to sit next to him. Come and sit and down. And I was going to him, oh, I'm not going over there. I'm not going. And he would, they were going, go on, go on, go on. See what it and he just sat me down. And I was just sat there and they were, he was rabbiting onto his friends, all these people in white robes. And, and I'm sitting there like a lemon. And I, I just didn't know. Oh, it was really weird. And um, I was too embarrassed to say what you're doing. Obviously, I didn't want to say what you're doing here now. Again. <laughs> Again, yes. So I, I, th- I just sort of said, I think I better go. It's going to start the show. 
and, and we, no. ran, we vanished and I didn't see him again then after that I don't think no. did I I'm trying to think did I meet him I met Paul again but never saw George again where did you meet Paul Paul at Lipper that um when they when Mark Featherstone and him were trying to open Lipper and they were trying to raise money trying to raise money for us <clears throat> we'd opened the Beatles story and he came down Mark came down to see us and we suggested that they put uh, there's a photo of Paul with a, a mortarboard on. I think it was to advertise. So we said, you know, why don't you put a stand, a life-size stand, with um, a placard in front with the leaflets advertising Lipper, which we did, and he thought it was a great idea, you know. So Mark then would invite us to the, the graduations, ceremonies. and so we would get into the, the little VIP side, and Paul, you know, Paul would go round and be introduced to every little group. And then, you know, this, this, I think it happened twice, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the first time, Brilliant. he just looked across the room and he, he spotted yeah. Bernie and he, he just made a beeline for him. And, <laughs> Hello. and then the last time I think we saw him, he was with Heather, wasn't he? He looked at Mike and he said, oh, you look like Michael Palin, which he did a bit. It was nice, you know, he was very friendly and it was just... It's just a lovely, a lovely time, wasn't it? So, if we could move on to the the museum and the role that you you had both had in the kind of the growth of Beatles tourism through the eighties. Yeah. So, when do you remember it really changing, and you both realise that there might be a, a real appetite for Beatles tourism in Liverpool? I feel that John Lennon's happen. death was a catalyst for fans to come to Liverpool almost like a pilgrimage. And another major happening was the riots in Liverpool in 1981, which also was a game changer for the social economic side of Liverpool. Because so, so you had John Lennon's death, which shocked the world. And we started getting a trickle of Americans and Japanese. And then the riots, which made the government at the time, which Margaret Thatcher's government, sent Michael Heseltine up to come to this major city. What are they doing? I'm in riots. We yeah. must do something about it. Yeah. So, and then another thing, tell them about 1983, you saw an advert. They had an advert in one of the newspapers saying, looking for Beetle Guides, or some tourism office looking for Beetle Guides. So I said to him, oh, I can do that. Um, I was a hairdresser by trade originally. And so I'd been working in different salons. My sister had a salon and uh, we did a few other little jobs, as it were, to make ends meet. And then I said, oh, I could do that as a part-time job because I still had two young children. So I trained to be a Beetle Guide. And then that led, you know, we saw the fans coming in and wanting to see it. That led to um, what we call a blue badge. I don't know if you know, it's a, a, a national qualification um, called the Blue Badge Guides. And, you know, you're credited with being trustworthy as it were, you know, and not going to rip people off. And so I took a blue badge course. And as the Beatles popularity grew, we, we got a little minibus take to take because of 12 people or 13 people around. And we all had to take PSV driving tests to get that. So I enjoyed it. It was good, good fun meeting a lot of people, you know. So that was the beginning of the interest in fans visiting Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Very little in Liverpool for them to see besides Strawberry Fields, Matthew Street, Penny Lane. Uh, There was the small 
exhibition that Liz and Jim Hughes started, which we mentioned in the book, that was Cattle Mecca, uh, which sadly they, they didn't have any funding, hardly at all, very little support from the council, but they didn't. And they, they were like the pioneers at that time. And then 1984, this other, a, a major exhibition did open, and that was Beatles City. And the same year as International Garden Festival came to Liverpool, we had the tall ships visit, mm-hmm. the art of the Beatles, and Cavern Walks opened in Matthew Street. So a lot happened in 84, but, you know, as we said, 80, John Lennon being murdered, 81 riots. This led to Liverpool's resurgence, or the beginning of Liverpool's resurgence. Because we, we, when, we, when we actually started, got the Beatles story going, the resistance from the rest yeah. of the country, yeah. from people to come to Liverpool, yeah. was amazing because we yeah. had such a bad and you know a bad negative image. Yeah. We had a bad image, Liverpool, which happily changed. So, at what point did the idea for the museum kind of come up? Well, it came. It came because of right. Beatles City, in a way. The manager of Beatles City in 1986. By, by a mistake, total mistake. Um, I was I was the entertainment manager at the Festival Gardens in 86. The owner of Beatles City um, said, oh, I'm going to sell it, sold it to the people at the Garden Festival. Who were going to take it there? Anyway, the Garden Festival didn't work. And there was one job going for me. And that, that was Beatles City manager. I said, I'll have it. <laughs> so I ended up in Beatles City. But it wasn't doing well. It was it was failing. It was losing money. Another guy came along and said, "I bought Beatles City. I'm taking it to America." So really, the the birth of the Beatles story started. We went to America because this guy didn't knew nothing about the Beatles, but he recognised in Bernie and I as some kind of. Obviously, we had the correct history, but we also had expertise. Bernie was a, you know, a great Beatle guide. I knew music. I played at the cabin. So it, it started because of that. So we went, as we explain in the book, we went to the tourism board and said, Beatle City's not coming back. We need a Beatle exhibition, don't we? And I think we said in the book at the time, the tourism chief wasn't exactly a Beatles fan, but we convinced him <laughs> otherwise. I think to get rid of me, he gave me some money and said, go and do a feasibility study on why we should have a Beatle exhibition. So that's what we did. So it started from that. It started from us going, let's do it ourselves. We managed to, get we managed to raise £350,000. Then we were told by the experts that we couldn't create our dream for that money. You would need another £350,000. So we then got a major partner who was Wembley Stadium, and they took the other 50%. And then we managed to get the all the money we needed. And by hook or by crook, <laughs> we managed to do it. But Bernie and I actually did everything, everything that you see at the exhibition, you know, the full design. I raised all the money. Bernie wrote the story. We both designed each feature meticulously mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't clash with the one before there was no sound leakage it really took people we, back we had a motto didn't we in time oh, what was the strap line uh, yeah. we our motto was see it hear it feel it 
Um, we should have said smell it because we used to have smells as well. When we went into Matthew Street, there was smells of apples and things and there was a rat running along the drain pipe. You know, we wanted animatronics, didn't we? But that was just way out of the question at the time. So so over the course of you kind of developing this and, and building this, what kind of support did you get from, if any, from Apple, Abbey Road, the Beatles themselves? Did, did you get a lot of help? Not a lot. Okay. <laughs> no. Absolutely none from the council. The Merseyside Development Corporation, who was controlled by the government, they they did introduce me to Wembley. But when we had to deal with Apple, that was another story mm. of... They didn't want to know because Beatles City basically had failed. Mm. And Neil Aspinall is, at this time, he's the, the boss of Apple... And so Neil Aspinall didn't want the headache mm. of asking these four superstars, <laughs> yeah. oh, there's a Beatle exhibition, another Beatle exhibition going to open in Liverpool. What do you think, lads? He didn't want to be bothered asking them. And so he didn't want to talk to me. And it took me, it was just determination on my part that I kept at them, at them, ringing them every week, sending him letters. I'm sending him faxes because it was all faxes then. And eventually, Derek Taylor, his right hand man, said, Meet me in London, meet me in um, the crypt of St. Martin's in the field. And we had a very nice conversation, showed him my plans. I think he recognized that we weren't in it for the money. We were doing it for the right reasons. We were doing it for Liverpool. We were doing it for the fans. And I think he went back to Neil and said, look, they're okay. These people are okay. And then Neil's met us. <laughs> and I said, will we get, will you endorse the exhibition? And he went, no. <laughs> I, said, I said, will we get any of the Beatles at the opening? No. <laughs> Can we have some photographs? We might let you have some photographs. Mm. So basically we got a nod in the dark, nothing in writing. He basically, he said, I don't want you to do this. And I said, why? He said, because if it goes wrong, I'll get the blame. I said, how will you get the blame? <laughs> he says, well, the press blames us for everything. And the press come to me because I'm the head of Apple. Wow. So what year did the museum open? 1990. May 1990. Okay. And was it a success straight away or did it take time to build it took time to build. Um, it was a critical success from day one. Everybody loved it. Every, you know, the press, everyone, everyone loved the idea of what we did, the way we, we created these 18 features. And you actually ended up, the last feature was a tribute to John, and we recreated the White Room in total isolation, total soundproof, and all you heard was Imagine playing. We didn't make any money for three years, and um, there was a reason for that, a few reasons. 1990, there was a recession started. Um, Lockerbie had happened. Mm -hmm. And the Gulf War started. Yeah. So we had those three things against visitors having Family. money in their pockets. And the Americans didn't like them all because of Lockerbie. Uh, so it took three years to become, to break even. But now it's 32 years. We did create the story well. So the actual fans, the real Beatle fans, probably wanted to see more memorabilia because it wasn't based on memorabilia. 
It was based on the creation. It was it was going into the Mersey Beat office. It was going into that section with the Star Club. We actually imported cobbles from Germany. So it gave the right thing, then the Mersey Beat office, and then you walked up Matthew Street with the sound effects there and the subwoofer coming out of the wall playing the bass of Twist and Shout. Our, our replica cavern mm. is very close to yeah. the original cavern. I had seen that. I, I had seen it when I was training to be a guide. We were being given a recce at the Albert Dock, and when I went down, I went back to Mike and said, I've seen the place. I've seen where we should do it. It just looks like the cabin archways, you know. So we distressed all the walls because <laughs> in the original cabin, the water used to stream down the walls of the condensation. And we just distressed them all and cleverly, um, you know, got the designers to make it look like it was wet. <laughs> it was, a, I mean, it was a team effort, even, even though we, we, we designed everything and, and thought through everything. We had a great architect who we could go to ev- on a daily basis and say, we thought about this. Could you do this? Yeah. He would change. He would do something that we wanted mm-hmm. and change each time. But I think the success that you're asking about is just because we took so much care and attention to detail and made sure the people came out feeling that not they'd add value for money, but they really got a feel of what it was like in the 60s. Mm-hmm. One last question then. I know you're not directly involved in the museum now. Not none of none of the original um, partners or investors are, are involved. We sold it out to Mersey Travel about 10 years ago. So despite that, how do you feel about it now when you see it as it is now? Well, well, we're, we're proud that it's still there, that it's had over 5 million visitors. Sadly, they've had to change the, the first part of it yeah. because of COVID. its success. Well, its success and COVID. Because it's so successful, they we, we planned a 1,000 visitors a day, maybe on a bank holiday. They now can get 2,000 visitors a day. So yeah. they can't get physically, they couldn't get 2,000 people through. So they have had to open out the first four of our features to us, who, you know, took so much time making those first four features very personal, very atmospheric, that has gone. Yeah. But we can't blame them for that. No. So, so, and but the, the rest... nationalities now they have, there were so many nationalities. The boards were all in English, so people could read if they understood English. But now they have the earphones with yeah. about seven languages, seven and Russian, Japanese, everything. Um, some people don't like them. Some people do. People who went in the early days say, oh, we'd much rather have the boards. You know, the reason is to take the numbers of people and all the different nationalities. We have all the cruise ships coming in now to Liverpool uh, from all over the world, obviously. So it had to change had, to develop. It really. had to change just mm-hmm. to, Accommodate it's people, a, yeah. you know, victim of its own success, really. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we can't complain about that. But the, the main thing, a lot of the things that we did are still, still there. there. Yeah, and the cavern to us was a big deal. A big deal because Bernie met George there, did her thing there. Big deal for me because I saw all the bands there. I played there eventually. So the cavern, an hour cavern, you can't knock it down because it's solid brick. So they, <laughs> they couldn't interfere with that. They couldn't interfere with Matthew Street. It all looks good. And it, and it's great the fact that we've we've managed at this time to do a book which is dedicated to a friend of ours who gave us the first money 
but it's also dedicated to everybody who was involved in making it happen. And we're lucky enough, um, lucky that Bernie was a hoarder and has all those <laughs> wonderful flyers, leaflets, the notes from George, her signed handbag, you know, stuff like that. It's priceless, you know. It certainly is. Uh, well, thanks, Mark and Bernie, so much for uh, for your time and for sharing your, your Liverpool stories and your story of the, of the museum. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet Thank you. you. Nice to meet you.